Chapter 7 of The Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 For a full moment no one spoke. The three looked at the man who missed it, with eyes which expressed the sympathy of their hearts, but no word escaped them. Indeed, they knew not what to say. The death of his benefactor, following so swiftly as it did the death of his bride, put such a climax to precedent misfortunes, that the hearers felt themselves unable to express in words an adequate sense of his overwhelming loss. For several minutes the silence continued, when the man who missed it interrupted it by resuming his narrative. Yes, my benefactor died. Died as suddenly as his daughter had died before him. He was standing by my side in the laboratory, conducting with me a system of experiments. He was stating a proposition and looking directly in my face when a change, swift as a flash, came to his countenance. The very word he was speaking halted in his throat. He threw his hands into the air and dropped, without a moan or a struggle, dead at my feet. The double misfortune literally broke the heart of the mother and the wife, and she too died that night, and we buried them both at the same time, one coffin on either side of my bride's coffin. Three coffins in one grave, John Norton, and when the mound was rounded over the three, I stood beside it, once more without a home and without a friend. All that I had won I had lost. All that I had hoped for I had suddenly missed. No, you had not lost all, said the girl, and her face brightened. You had not lost all, for you had your mind and your learning left, and all the wisdom and cunning that learning had brought to your natural abilities were with you. Were they not, John Norton? And the girl flashed a glance into the old man's face. Certainly, certainly, Magnet, responded the trapper. Knowledge be a thing you can't take from a man, nor a hound unless you kill him, and a man with learning can do almost anything, if he has the right spirit within him. I admit the force of what you say, said the man. It is true that no calamity which leaves the reason untouched and the spirit unsubdued can rob man of the powers and pleasures of intelligence, and this thought it was which strengthened me in my affliction. And when I left the neighborhood where I had spent so many happy years, I carried with me a great grief indeed, but with it also a great hope. And... I face the uncertainties of the future with a spirit braced to overcome its obstacles and to remove whatever impediment there might be in my path. You was wise in that, said the trapper. I've been in some tight places myself off and on in my life, but I was never in a place yet I didn't get out of, and in pretty good shape, too, considering all the circumstances. I don't doubt but what you got along pretty well, friend, arter you got to work, and if you don't mind telling us. I would like to know what trail you stuck to after you left the three graves. I have told you, said the man, that I was by nature ingenious. I was born with a faculty of invention. With my benefactor I had been a student of nature. With him I had discovered many of the forces which are in the earth and the air. I discovered the law which governs the movement of storms. I made myself acquainted with the scientists of the age. I showed them my data. I unfolded the principle. In my enthusiasm I gave them all the facts which years of patient investigation had brought to my knowledge. I did it in the enthusiasm born of my success. 
I had no doubt of my reward. You got your reward? said the girl interrogatively. I got no reward, said the man. The men in whom I had confided betrayed me. They were rich. They were titled. They were men known throughout the world. They examined my data. They took from me all the knowledge with which I was possessed. They mastered the principles that by years of patient investigation I had discovered. And then, what did they do then? said the girl. They published them as their own discoveries, said the man. They stole my knowledge and gave me no credit. They appropriated the honor that belonged to me. They never even gave me an honorable mention in their reports. He said this with a vibration of bitterness in his voice, with the emphasis of a man who feels that he has been greatly wronged, and yet, with the sadness, too, of one who feels that the wrong will never be righted, and that the injury done him is irreparable. They were vagabonds, said the trapper. Yes, they were natural thieves. It was no better than the half-breeds to steal the skins from another man's trap, though his name be cut into the iron as plain as a file can do it. I trust you ambushed them and their thieving friend, and squared accounts with them afore you took up the line and left the country? John Norton, responded the man, it is little that a poor man can do against a rich man, or that a lowly one can do against them that are in high places. It was a theft that I could not indict at the law. The property they stole from me was not that of money and lands, but of honor of reputation, and of credit for having served the age and advanced it in intelligence and power. If I applied for membership to their society, they would not admit me. If I called at their studies, I would get no audience. I went to the editors of the great journals, and they looked upon me as crazy. I was poor, and they who had stolen my knowledge were rich. I was unknown, and they were honored." I was alone, and they were a part of a system. What could I do, one against the many? They had the best on you for certain, said the trapper. Yes, the sneaks had the best on you, but I'd have warmed them in some way if I had been in your place afore I was done with the rogues. It was not a case, John Norton, in which physical force or human courage could win the fight. I had ascertained scientific facts of the utmost import, but they had been stolen from me by those whom the people honored, and why should the people believe a man without money, without title, without friends, when over against him are the honored and the great? But it makes little difference, said the man sadly. I shall get my reward by and by, perhaps. Friend, the scripture says that the Lord will appoint a day in which the vagabonds and them that have done evil on the earth will get a general overhauling and the idea is certainly a reasonable one. Now, when that day comes, don't you fail, friend, and do ye put in your case as strongly as you can when the matter of the cheating comes up. You'll find me somewhere in the crowd, for I've got one or two things that'll have to be attended to myself. Not matters of any great weight, for I have generally kept the account pretty well squared as I went along. But there is a sneak of a half-breed up on the Canada line, nigh the headwaters of the St. Regis, that's got two good pelts that belong to me, if there is any ownership in trapping, and his case will certainly come up in the judgment, unless I can manage to get time to take a journey to the north end of the woods once more. And if I do, the Lord needn't pay any special attention to him, 
for I know the points of the case, and I have a pretty good idea of such matters. And if I can get up to the Canada line and the vagabond hasn't moved out of the country, I'll settle the matter in a judicious manner. But I certainly advise ye to be on hand at the judgment and make them rogues give back what they stole from you. And if you get into a little discussion over the matter, and you want any help, you see ye being one and they being several, if they should get noisy, you might want a little help. And the old man moved his chair a trifle towards his guest in the simple earnestness of his confidential tender of assistance. I don't see, said the girl, what good a scientific reputation will do one in heaven. Hoot, said the trapper. Magnet, you don't understand these things. A man's reputation is his reputation, wherever he be, as I conceit. And it goes with him as the skin goes with a duck, whether he dives or flies. Friend, don't you mind what the girl says, for she be a girl, and you just stand up for your rights. And if you want any help, as I was saying, any man to swear you're right in your charges or to put in a few licks after the verdict is given. But John Norton, said the girl, interrupting him, you don't suppose that we are going to have bodies in heaven, do you? Bodies? Of course I do, said the trapper. Lord, Magnet, how is a man going to get along without a body? Why, we couldn't see each other if we didn't have bodies. But John Norton, said the girl again in her earnestness, interrupting him, if we do have bodies, they won't be at all like these, but a great deal better. Better, returned the trapper. There can't be a better body magnet than this one. Why, I've lived nigh unto eighty year, and I've never known a pain in my life, or an ache, save as such a man as gets on a scrimmage or in a battle, or such as he has in his stomach when meat is scarce and he is unnaturally hungry. You see, I know what I'm talking about, Magnet. A man who talks from an experience of eighty year isn't guessing at the thing. No, no, the Lord can't make a better body than he give me a birth. Leastwise, I'll be perfectly contented if he'll give me another as good as this has been and keep it running forever. The man had listened, apparently, with a good deal of interest to the conversation, for the girl's animation and the old trapper's earnestness were amusing. But when the trapper had closed with a sententious opinion touching the perfection of the mortal body, the man who missed it joined in the conversation, or rather continued his narrative. I was a good deal cast down, he said, for a time after I was cheated of the credit which belonged to me in the matter of which I was speaking, but though they could steal the results of past study, they could not steal the investigating quality of my mind. Knowledge remained with me, and out of the knowledge I had gained sprang other knowledge, and the line of my previous study led me to another and more important discovery. What was it? said Tom, speaking for the first time, but who had listened as one greatly interested. What was your next discovery? I had discovered the laws which govern the movement of storms. I next discovered the cause of storms itself. I beg you to explain it, said the young man. I have been something of a natural student myself, and the physical sciences have been my delight. I am glad to meet you, sir, said the man, speaking with animation. I am glad to meet one who can enter sympathetically into the labors of my life, and who can appreciate, therefore, the losses I have met and the man turned his chair until he sat facing the young man and addressed his explanation directly to him. I discovered, as I have told you, the movement of storms. I found that it was rotary, and that they moved with various degrees of rapidity. I knew that if I could command telegraphic communication, 
the approach of a storm might be known days before it would come, and the commerce of the country could be governed self-protectingly by the knowledge. And it took me years of patient examination before the cause of storms was revealed to me, but at last I found it. What did you find it to be? asked the young man. I will explain it to you, responded the man. It is this. The origin of all storms is found in heat. Heat comes from the sun and the planets. When these sources of heat are brought in conjunction above any special area of the Earth's surface, that area is subject to unusual heat. The atmosphere resting above that area becomes exceptionally rarefied and rises upward, and makes an atmospheric vacuum, and a rapid movement of air occurs. The outward atmosphere rushing tumultuously in towards the center of the vacuum. Thus storms, tempests, and tornadoes are caused. Granted, therefore, continued the man, speaking with great rapidity and earnestness, a certain planetary conjunction above a certain area of territory at a certain time, and at that time within that area of territory a storm of greater or lesser violence according to the degree of heat thus localized is sure to occur. Do you follow my explanation? I do, said the young man, speaking with animation. I follow it perfectly, and it is not only novel, but it is startling. If storms originate in heat, and the heat originates in planetary conjunction, and the planetary movements which result in the conjunction are astronomically known, why... And the young man hesitated a moment, while his eyes fairly shone with the intensity of thought which had flashed upon him. Why cannot storms be predicted as certainly as an eclipse? They can be, said the man who missed it. I can predict a storm a thousand years before it will come. Friends, said the trapper, suppose you fetch up a minute at that point. You're pushing the trail a little too fast to make all the blazes plain, leastwise on both sides of the tree. And if you ain't careful, you'll get further into the swamp than you'll find your way out without a good deal of hollering. Now, Magnet and me have been paying pretty close attention to what you've been saying, and it may be that storms do go whirling around, for I've seen the little wind puffs spin themselves across the lake, and you can't live in the woods a month in the fall and not see the winds play their whirligigs with the leaves, and if it's true with the little puffs, I can see that it might be true with the big ones. And it may be that storms do move in the way you say, though arter my way of thinking they can't be relied on to move any way in particular. For storms have their notions and be a good deal like a woman with too many ideas in her head and little over-earnestness in her feelings. You can't always tell which way you'll find her. I ask your pardon, Magnet, said the old trapper, speaking to the girl, who had interrupted him with a clear peal of laughter. I ask your pardon, Magnet, if what I've said about the uncertainty of women's ways seem unkind to you. But I've watched them a good deal off and on in my guidin' and in my trips to the settlements, and I've come to the opinion that women be a good deal uncertain. You can't prophesy overnight how they're going to feel the next day. Not that I can see that that's anything again, a magnet, for the prettiest things in nature be the things that change oftenest. But there's nothing prettier than to see a woman change her mind overnight, especially if she was on the wrong side of the question when she went to bed. But... Friend, as to your prophesying about the coming of a storm a year or two before it comes, I said a thousand years, John Norton. I can predict the coming of a storm a thousand years before it comes. A thousand year! exclaimed the trapper. That's even most as long as eternity. 
Yes, yes, said the trapper, while an inexpressibly quizzical look came into his countenance. I dare say you can prophesy it, but I don't concede the storm will come any more for your prophesying. Did you ever see an eclipse, John Norton? asked the man. Certain, replied the trapper. There was one a year afore last. Me and the boys was camping on the raquette that summer, and a big un was, too. For the sun was blackened at noonday, and the stars came out eight hours afore they oughta, and the earth looked as if it had gone to a funeral, and everything was dreadfully solemn. I didn't mind much about it, for I'd seed the same thing afore, and I'd be a Christian man, and I know the Lord wouldn't wind things up in such a sudden way. But there was a half-breed in the camp that conceded that the end of the world had come, and as I knowed he hadn't lived as he ought to have lived, I didn't discourage the idea, but sort of helped it on a little with some judicious talk that pointed in that direction, for I conceded that a good scare might make him a little more honest, and I suspected he handled one or two of my traps a little loosely the fall before, and he might do it again if he wasn't educated out of his thieving notions. So I called the boys around me and whistled up the pups, who was a good deal scared themselves, and just told the boys that we'd better throw the powder into the lake, for the fire would burst out pretty soon, and everything would be blazing. And then I told the pups they'd better take to the water afore they got singed. You see, the boys took the hint of the thing, and Henry helped me out a good deal, for he said that there wasn't much use to move the horns or the pups, for the flames wouldn't come little by little but the island would be blowed up a thousand feet into the air all at once, but that the good would be carried away by the angels. But if a man had been a thief and had stolen anything, if it wasn't anything more than an empty horn or a musket skin, the angels wouldn't touch him with their little finger, but he'd have to stay and take it, unless he owned up, and the boy put a good deal of earnestness into the words, owned up, and the old man thoroughly tickled at the memory of the ruse that they had played on the half-breed stopped in his narration and laughed with a heartiness that watered his eyes. It was one of those exhibitions of laughter that is contagious, and even the man who had missed it, moved by the hilarity of it, joined with the two younger people in the explosions that followed. "'What effect did it have on the half-breed?' asked the girl when the laughter had partially subsided. "'Well, you see,' said the trapper, wiping his eyes with the sleeve of his coat, "'the vagabond was ignorant and wicked both.' and he certainly thought the judgment had come, and he owned up to a string of pilfering, a good deal worse than I had suspected him of, for to start with he had taken six mink skins from me. I asked him if he hadn't forgot one or two, but he swore that the six was every blessed one he'd taken. Then he'd pilfered a sack of salt from a trapper on Deadwood, and a box of sugar from a party on Little Wolf, but I told him I didn't think the Lord would make any special count of the sugar, unless it was better than most of the peddlers brought in from the settlements. But Henry said it was just as bad to steal sand as it was to steal sugar, and as it helped the man towards righteousness, I didn't gainsay it at the time. But I argued the point with Henry afterwards, and I made him own up that it wasn't reasonable to hold even a vagabond to quite so close a reckoning for sand as it was for real first-class sugar. What effect did it have on him the next day? asked the man who missed it. "'Just about as much effect,' answered the trapper, "'as your prophesying a storm a thousand year ahead "'would have found the storm, as I conceit. "'For nature has her ways, "'and you can't prophesy her into doing what you want her to do. "'And you can't frighten a half-breed into honesty, "'for out of the darkness had gone, 
The vagabond was as chipper and chirp as I'd ever seed him, and I lost more skins the next fall in the line that led past his clearing than I had ever lost afore in any one line of my life. For though a scare will make a thief shake for a minute, you can't make an honest man of him, and when the fright is over, if he was a thief at the start, he shall be a thief still. End of chapter 7